welcome to the Center Maryland podcast. We are here with the conference call with, you know, somebody we're really blessed to have. That's Frederick Bart Harvey. Um, Bart, for 30 years, has been really an incredible innovator in bringing affordable housing, offering a path out of poverty for low-income families. He's the former chair and CEO of Enterprise Community Partners. So all of us, uh, Jim Rouse, Columbia, Maryland, Inner Harbor, Faneuil Hall fans will recognize uh, Mr. Harvey as being really sort of a, a, a right-hand person and partner of Jim Rouse on really this next part of his career after the Rouse Company. Mr. Harvey is credited with growing enterprises impact from investing $200 million and supporting 5,000 affordable homes annually to more than a billion dollars supporting 20,000 homes annually. I also want to talk to you about Mr. Harvey's co-founder, Jim Rouse. We're going to discuss him today. He and Jim Rouse together worked uh, with Congress to create the low-income housing tax credit, which all of our friends in the housing and development community know what an instrumental piece of legislation that is to get people uh, on a path out of poverty. Uh, he also led Enterprise's launch of the Green Communities Initiative, really far ahead of its time, almost, I think, a $600 million uh, commitment to bring uh, sustainable, bet, uh, sustainable development to low-income families. So I want to welcome uh, a great Marylander, can I say that, and a, a great Baltimorean, uh, but more importantly, somebody who's looked out for the full spectrum of human beings trying to find a way to housing and, and a path out of poverty. Uh, Bart, I know you can't stand these long, long introductions, so I'm just going to cut straight to you. Welcome, Senator Maryland's the conference call. Thank you, Damien, very much. And it's, uh, it, it's a privilege to be here with you, and I'm glad you're fighting the good fight um, for all of us. Uh, let me just give you a quick intro into how I met Jim Rouse. And um, I was, uh, had come out of Harvard Business School, went and toiled in the vineyard of, of investment banking. Something was missing. I was very successful. So I took a chicken's way out of saying, okay, I'll, I'll start a sabbatical program. No one would take it. So I took it and um, was going to spend six months with Enterprise. Um, and the way I met them, was um, I met Jim and, and Patty Rouse was through a headhunter who was recruiting me for another firm. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go on this sabbatical for six months and help out somebody. Um, and uh, they just had dinner with Jim Rouse. And I knew Jim um, being, a, uh, being from Baltimore. And I went down and met with Jim and Patty Rouse. And uh, invest, and in investment banking, you want all the odds in your favor. Um, and so in meeting them, I said, well, Jim, what are you, what are you all going to do in this foundation? And he said, we're going to change conditions so that every low-income person in the United States has a decent home and lives in a reasonable community. And all I could think to myself is this guy is absolutely nuts. He doesn't have it. he doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the resources. He doesn't have the people to do it. This is a crazy idea, but he has a reputation and a track record. And for six months, I can do anything. At the end of that six months, 
it ended up being 24 years of my life. And not only do I not think he's crazy today, I think he's, he's the only one who was really right about what we do with our journey. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, Jim really didn't look at the probabilities or um, that success was defined by resources, money, et cetera. He thought that we were put here to make things better and to use our talents and to use our abilities and to look at what doesn't work, the big problems, and look beyond them to what the solutions are and to figure out that how we fix those. And he, he believed that ordinary people can do extraordinary things, believe that deeply. He felt he was an ordinary person who was doing, and, and he did do extraordinary things. He'd never say that. And, and he really sort of taught us that what's most important is our journey, is, is how you look at things, how you act for them to make them better, and, um, and that your journey is so much more important than the destination. I learned that one, I think, 42 years too late. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm, getting, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting closer to it. Talk to me about your first interaction with Jim Rouse. What was that like? Um, he had, I imagine when you had first met him in the enterprise context, he had already had this fabulous reputation as, as kind of a visionary master planner, had been had been on Time Magazine by that time? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so what was that like meeting? Well, when I first met him, he had just left the Rouse Company. Um, and uh, he was 65 years old. 65, think about it. He's 65 years old. He had left the Rouse Company. They had a term limit on uh, the CEO, and he was going to uphold it at 65. And then he decided to take everything that he had learned in building up the Rouse Company and apply it to the issues in, um, in our urban cities. Um, and uh, he, was, um, he was horrified by, by what existed and, he, and, he, and he, he was horrified by a divided society. He was, he, um, he, he looked, you know, he had sayings, these are later on, but he's saying that a city ought to be a garden to grow people in. Think about that. A city ought to be a garden to grow people in. That's how he looked at it. So he sort of simplified these huge urban issues that we were going through and the division by race and the, um, and the, division in the country and and he felt that he believed in capitalism um, but he believed in it only to the extent that it sort of defined the the truth of how you get something done you need to put capital into it you, you need to make it work in real terms for real people in a practical way um, but he looked at companies very differently. Um, he looked at, and his last, 
his last talk to the um, Rouse Company shareholders is something that a uh, CEO would never ever say um, to the company because he, he, he basically said there are three purposes of business. Um, one is to do what you do really superbly and have an excellent product. And for the Rouse Company, that was to reshape the physical aspects of of the uh, of the real estate markets and to have successful markets. The second was to make sure all of your people were using all of their talent and ability in doing it. And the bottom line, the third thing was profit. And that came out of the first two things. If you did something really well, you, you met a legitimate human need of, of individuals and your people were happy and prosperous in their work, the result of that is profit. And that if you go for profit first, you got it all wrong. You got the bottom on the top of it. Now, who says that today? Nobody, um, nobody on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that, that, that's for sure. So the interactions with him were really amazing. And, um, and he would be, you know, I'm jumping around in your question, but you know, we would meet Trammell Crow, huge real estate yeah, firm, big, huge real estate firm, and others, and you know, of his ilk. And they always said, "Why did you do all the difficult stuff? We made money off of um, you're doing these festival marketplaces. We would just buy the property around them. You would fight through all the problems of of uh, doing the Inner Harbor, doing Faneuil Hall, or doing these." other things and um and uh and 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 we would feast off of you we love you <laughs> and he said solving the problems and may and creating solutions is so much more fun than just making money so here's a guy who's who looks at um you know looks at capitalism that looks at problems as things to be solved um, for a better society for all of us. And, and as you said, he was orphaned. His older brother, he, um, you know, helped him out. He, he went on a tramp steamliner to University of Hawaii where the tuition was free. He took a job parking cars and he had to, to go to night law school and he had to admit he didn't know how to drive, but he sure would learn. Um, <laughs> The guy that employed him, and he did, um, and um, so he overcome. He overcame lots and lots of obstacles to get where he was going. But he was just he was optimistic, and uh, this is a guy you know that says pessimism builds nothing. It's the optimists in life that see the opportunities. They're looking beyond the problem. That that have the advantage of being able to, to set a bold plan in action and motivate people and their mind and to work towards the solutions we need, no matter how difficult the situation is. And this is what this guy did day in, day out. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, gee, he was a genius. He was hardly a genius. I, I, I've worked with him side by side. We built things from scratch. 
and um, he uh, he was ninety percent perspiration. He would work all day, all night on it. He'd mobilize everything he could to find solutions, and then there was ten percent just absolute inspiration. And uh, he was like Atlas to me. He was he was doing crazy things from my investment banking background. And then all of a sudden, and he would carry all the hard work and he'd jump in the swamp and start fighting his way out of it. And, um, uh, and, and then that inspiration would come in at the end. So it was boldness. It was having cojones to take on things. And it was hard work and doing the best you could. You know, one of the things that I identify with him as being a native Marylander, and, and please sway me if I'm off course here, but, you know, his growing up on the eastern shore of Maryland and then, you know, coming into being a, uh, in the real estate industry in Baltimore in the, you know, late 50s, early 60s, I guess, um, he experienced I think that incredible racial tumult that only places like the Eastern shore in that period or uh, Baltimore and some other major cities in the South, just very much in turmoil. And, you know, we all find ourselves on different sides of that at different times. He seemed to use the ugliness of that experience in his own life to catapult him to that, garden in a city thinking and I just, I'd love your I'd love to hear what you think about that sort of about Maryland being that middle temperament between north and south Baltimore you know just being a very complicated city and a, a lot of racial tension uh how, how did how did you know like the, some beauty come from that terrible tossing and turning that we all experience as Marylanders. How did well, he, he grow he through? Saw that? It. He saw he, it. He saw it. He understood it. I'm going to give you, if you don't mind, just a quick little little talk that he gave at a dinner. I just. Uh, you can tell um, I need it. So please. Uh, <laughs> here's what he said. And this was in 1989. Okay. So we're, and he was addressing a lot of people at dinner. Uh, at a dinner, we were holding a fundraising dinner with Jack Kemp and other people in attendance. You know, we are here to, to think about the future of a divided America with increasing millions of our people separated into a sublife, sometimes called the underclass, detached from the values and living conditions we consider fundamental. People who know little relationship with our concern for a society in which they feel left out, abandoned. These conditions that we suffer in America, the price we pay, the threats they pose are not our destiny. They have crept up upon us through unawareness, inattention or indifference. They're like a disease, untreated and unchecked. And then he goes on to say, all right, so now what can you do about it? And how do, we, how, do, how, do we, how do we improve our society where we've, we've sacrificed 
other people's lives and the and the and the and the livelihood of kids that have to grow up in this kind of divided society. Um, and so he say, he's saying we're not he's saying at this point, as Americans, we're just not conscious. We're not we're, we're, we're not awake. We're not aware. Yeah. We're inattentive, right? I mean, he's saying we're, we're sleeping. We're sleeping, not this. looking or indifferent to it. It doesn't bother us anymore because we've segregated ourselves out. Um, but do you see how that all that language that he's talking about, and it's it it is a forebearer to all of the consulting that CEOs and public leaders get now about presence of mind yeah. and the power of now and being in the moment right he's he's touching on that from a from exactly. a societal standpoint I, I, I mean he really is and and more than that he doesn't just talk about it he he sort of says get involved in it uh, and use your powers for 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 something that will really make you um uh It'll make you happy as a person, um, and uh, uh, and it, and you know I watched him during our you know twenty four years together. Well, twenty four years I was at Enterprise, and we had fourteen while he was still alive, um, and I took over a few years before he died, uh, and then kept running it, but. Uh, he told, you know, I watched him and he take some of the leaders. There was this right wing conservative head of Merrill Lynch. And I said, oh, geez, there's no chance there. And he said, watch this, Bart. And he, he said, well, I'm taking him on a tour. He's going to meet somebody that is living in um, our house and our housing that we provided in a in a um, community that needs lots of work, and he'll understand it. And we took him in there, and he, you know, he was very personable guy. I mean, he's farther right than Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, and he and he met this young woman um, who was really smart. We, we of course had set it up a little bit, we, we knew who, who she was and she was going back to school and started talking to about her upbringing. She'd been abused as a child and, you know, but, and had a child, but was gonna make the best for that child. And he, this head of Merrill Lynch hired her on the spot and she went to work for Merrill Lynch. And he said, that's what it's all about. That's what we ought to be doing. <laughs> he, he found ways that, you know, and then he became a fundraiser for us. And, you know, he didn't, this wasn't left or right. This was about human beings. And so Jim had this marvelous way of saying, this is about human beings. And they, you know, this isn't, this is to get rid of your preconceptions and get to work and, figure out how we make you know people that need opportunity into good parts of our society so he really did it in human terms um and um you know we had bob mcnamara going out in the inner city the head of time life andrew high school who oh i loved he became a mentor of mine and um 
in in his last days, he he went out into these into Brooklyn's and Queens where we had worked and completely changed neighborhoods, and that was his relief from um, you know this from high New York society, a big CEO, etc. Um, so there's potential. So one of the things Jim never believed that you couldn't get people to, to find a way to use their potential to, to make society better. He, he implicitly, you know, that's lost on some people, but it, he believed we could bring this country together around the principles of, of hard work and a better society. And he did, he did. He seemed to have uh, a charismatic quality everybody talks about. Um, so what really interests me is, you know, going into downtown Baltimore and telling them they need to turn this sort of port location into, uh, you know, a grand new uh, marketplace was not the easiest fight to pick, you know, in 1978 or whenever that was, uh, was going on. But he did it anyway. So much of it seems to be sort of... Uh, the humility, the charisma. But the question I have for you, and it, it piggybacks on this Merrill Lynch experience is how is he able to organize for progressive values without being, uh, you know, too partisan or being immediately um, sort of marginalized from the conversation because people say, oh, of course that liberal would say that. And he's tied to these Democrats and these Democrats have done you know, bad things and we shouldn't listen to him. He seems to have fought through all that, either through his integrity or charisma. I think what he, do you think that was he, about? I think he gave people the benefit of the doubt and he, he, he was optimistic and he believed that you really could, uh, that you really could change people's minds um, and that you, um, that we we basically, you know, wanted to see things get better. That we basically understood that we didn't get here on our own. There were all kinds of people that helped us along the way, just like his brother helped him. And you know, hard work. He believed in a very believed in hard work, but he believed in the potential of every human being. I mean, he really. So he was able to scrape by everybody's sort of labels. Yeah, he never used labels. He didn't use labels. He was loved by the Democratic Party and he did vote Democratic. <laughs> but um, he but he didn't use labels. He didn't, you know, you know, it was it was it, it was. Um, it was amazing how he could take people and I go oh god Jim you're, you're gonna get eaten up here and uh, he'd sort of be like a dog that exposes neck um, <laughs> and they would roll over with him um, and it it, it it was it was humility it was giving due to the other person and it was trying to show some commonality of how we can how we can work together and you know we've mac matthias was a great friend who's republican wow. and republican senator and i remember going with mac matthias um 
you know, the Eastern shore and we saw terrible conditions and he saw them and he said, we're going to fix these. Um, it, it, you know, and Mac wasn't about, it wasn't Republican versus Democrat and, and he'd be just rolling in his grave about today. Let's talk about that about a little bit. Trump. Let's talk about Trump. that. What here's one of my complications is I view him as a remarkable frame for, you know, progressives and country club Republicans to kind of come together and find a middle again. And I'm sure that vernacular is outdated. I'm sure there's a better way to say that. Um, what, what do you think he would see in today? And I bet you as an optimist in all of this tragedy we see around us and, you know, hyper partisanship, all of these, this, the caste system, the class warfare, what do you, I think he would see opportunity in that. I'm just not sure, obviously, what it would be or or how to approach it. How do you, how do you think he would try to find the opportunity in the in the and the optimism in in the times we're facing now? I think he uh, uh, he would find he would look at it as opportunity. He there was nothing that he looked at where he just said, this is impossible. Cause I mean, I mean, look at what he took on. He was gonna provide a decent affordable home to every low income family. And that's a huge goal. And without it, we never would, you know, obviously it's worse today than it was back then, but that wasn't the point. The point was to look at how do you solve it? And we created the low income housing tax credit as a result. We, we did all kinds of things, which at, 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 you know, that has affected millions of people. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, even my audience, which is a sophisticated oh, yeah, cohort sorry, of people. No, no, but I, I really want to say like that piece of legislation, anytime I walk into, you know, somebody that's involved with housing or community redevelopment or social work, you know, that piece of legislation comes up in the meeting. <laughs> like people are saying, how are we going to do it? We're going to use this. I'd love to hear a little bit about that, that journey. Well, that journey was when um, there was, a, and so this is a little arcane, but this is a huge, this is a huge tool in the toolkit for uh, getting people out of poverty, getting them into housing and really wasn't uh, you guys put it on the planet and, and everybody gobbled it up. That's, well, it's created more housing than HUD has over the, <laughs> And and it and it started out in this. Uh, it was it was during Reagan years, and it was um, you know the mortgage interest deduction. Um, and I don't want to get too technical, but that's a deduction you get on your mortgage. You could get it in those days on your first house, your second house, your boat, your motorcycle, whatever. You know, whoever's really wealthy really got to use it, and it was the amount of that deduction was three times more than all of HUD was spending, but people considered that a right. Um, and if you rented, you got nothing. And so we went to work and interestingly, uh, Senator Packwood, Republican from Oregon, what was head of the finance committee um, in the Senate and um, and the, the head of the House Ways and Mean, Charlie Rangel, who was, who was a character in, up in Harlem. And we ended up in the tax bill in creating a credit 
that would allow you to would allow an, uh, you to get enough equity to be able to create affordable housing and leverage debt on top of it. And um, and it went through many iterations and um, joint tax tried to kill it three or four times. They tried to end it three or four times. We kept defending it and, and making it work and particularly for nonprofits. So enterprise goes into the hearts of cities, work with over a hundred nonprofits and basically was the backup partner to them and would bring this credit and you would be able to invest equity and we went out and sold it and it and it and it's created over a million affordable homes um and um and a million and affordable homes think about times the children think about the children, children in and those homes. that's four million people it affects um three or four million people and and so that, but that was working with Republicans and Democrats. And what Jim did was use his success in business. So most people thought he was would be a Republican because he was a very successful, you know, businessman, um, and they respected that from him. And that's how he's, you know, and so they was listened to. And you know, little did they know his more progressive views, but, um, it, it, you know, and he would work with that and he would, that was a common denominator that, you know, he respected business. He respected legitimate business that was run really well and that made things go. And, um, but he had progressive values and just to make sure he, he knew the history. He and I both, now there's two things, you know, if he, he was he was religious, but he read the Bible. And if you look at the Bible, you know the Bible and the, and and the New Testament in particular. Who who? What is the word that appears second to God in it? And and it's the poor, and that's what you're supposed to be working for. Um, that's who who Jesus works with. So anyway, so you can. You know, you know that's sort of one side of it, and and the other you know side of it is slavery, and and the slavery in this country stripped. The, you know, blacks couldn't be educated; they they couldn't have wealth. They you know they were freed back into slavery. The Jim Crow laws. Um, People were lynched during the Reconstruction. People don't understand his. He felt there was a special burden the United States had toward Black people, and that it wasn't a, a reparation, but it was affirmative opportunity for people that could work hard. Should be the reparation um, for the for the history that we have with Blacks and Indians in this um, native Indians in, in this country. And that, um, and that isn't being politically correct and he wouldn't want tearing down statues, et cetera. He, he would say, look forward, look, look, look forward. How do, we, how do we change these things? How do you change redlining? How do you treat people like people? Whether you're white, black, whoever you are, 
treat people like people and um, get down to the humanity of the thing, not the math of it. You know, he always, you know, everyone would would say, okay, mathematically, this is this is you know where we're headed. He hated trend lines. He said, go be underneath the trend lines and look how to change your assumptions. You know, we, we are our destiny is not math. If you if you, <laughs> if you take the you know the, the, the trends that are going and project them out, that's not our destiny. Go back and change <laughs> that's awesome. the assumptions that you've got. And that's what he did. And it's just so basic and it's so we forget it. Anyway, I learned I so yeah, you know this man. <laughs> and I loved you him know what? and he loved and everyone in that organization loved him. And everybody felt like they could do more than they probably could have and should have done. Um, and, and it's hard work. He, I mean, he believes in hard work, but it, it, it I think you showed me, I think you showed me here. One of the problems with the next generation of people that follow Rouse, right. Or maybe, maybe we're the second generation of followers of Rouse is that maybe we focus a little too much on the words and parrot them back to communities or leaders instead. And so we do a lot of the Rouse saying, but maybe we could all work a little harder, a lot harder on the Rouse doing, you know, I mean, he was such a, a quotable human being that we can get caught into the trap of uh, guarding ourselves with his words. When in fact he would say, rip those words right off. you, yeah, get out right. there and try to bring value to your, to your fellow human, right. right? Absolutely right. Am I catching on? You got it. <laughs> it's taking a while. Mean, you got it. You got it. And uh, I think that's a that's a that's a great place to to end this conversation. Um, is hey, you like know, there. let me let me tell you, let me tell you one thing. I think you would dig um, because you know at Columbia he was so uh, so excited to bring the national symphony out to Meriwether post. Right. And, uh, the new developer there and the community that now owns Meriwether post and, uh, everybody got together and they brought in soulful symphony, uh, to be the house orchestra of Meriwether post pavilion. So an all African-American yeah. Latino yeah. symphony, right? Uh, and they're playing the they're playing the Preakness with the DJ D Nice uh, last weekend in Baltimore. You know, I just I'd love to hear if you had any insights on leave. Just this is a little peculiar question, but last one for you. Uh, what role did music play in Jim Rouse's life? It seems to have played a big role in his placemaking. Uh, I wonder if you had any personal anecdotes or experiences about Jim Rouse and music. You know, I I don't have a lot. I don't think it played as large a a, a part as you think. Um, or I wanted it to, right? Yeah. Just um, <laughs> he he loved music as a part of life of the of the communal life of people. Um, and so that that was, you know, you, you had Meriwether Post Pavilion, you had um, you had different. I mean, he loved community activities that brought people together from different walks of life. And so his he didn't have a 
he he wasn't a he was working too hard. He to wasn't a groupie anything. going to shows, right? Yeah, and uh, he didn't go to shows, and he and he would have music on from time. Um, yeah, I you know I worked side by side with him for so long, and we'd go back and continue it at his house with he and uh, Patty. But um, um, but he was he was such a hard worker that um, there wasn't, but he loved communal things that brought people together. So here, here's another one of them is, do you know why in Columbia, he used to have all of the post office boxes side by side. So So people could catch, get uh, run into each other. Right. Exactly. I think my good friend, Jim Chafin, who's like the world-class like golf, community developer i think he lifted that idea and would admit it uh, greatly that that is a great way to get community together is give them that community mailbox right right so you just you run into each other um in in one avenue avenue or another that that was that was a principle that he used over and over again and he also he stole ideas and you find out all developers steal from each other he was walking around with walt disney and um you know, in, 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 you know, Walt wanted him to see uh, Disneyland when it first was there. And, and he goes, there's no gum. You know, this was during the days that when gum was everywhere and on the street. Oh, right, right. And it was on Harbor Place and stuff. And he said, what do you, what'd you do? And Walt shows him this thing, this cane with a razor blade on the bottom of it. And he said, they come by and they just can scrape it off with this thing. And we do it every Every night and so guess what you know next day harbor place they have canes with <laughs> there's just so many so many lovely human interactions that i saw that you just saw him love and the love was for music lovers to come together and and of all music of all times he had interfaith religion at um what about the swimming pools in Colombia where he said what he said we're not going to allow res each house to have a swimming right. pool my friend Greg Fitchett the CEO of Howard yeah. Hughes says this all the time and he says but he put community pools in to, to sort of uh, bring the people of all different stripes together to that common place. Right. And that yeah. was a huge switch. He, he uh, you know, he did that. And then this is a, a sort of a final story is when Columbia first started out, he said, you know, I'm not going to have quotas but i am going to have a black hostesses and white hostesses um and hosts and hostesses to show people around so they'll get the idea and then he found out that there were two uh black families that were going to be located next to each other and he said that that now we'll start a whole segregated part of it. And he took his house that he put down on and went to that black family and said, look, I'm going to give you my house, which is a bigger house. And he said, he was sure they were saying, what's this white guy doing to me now? And he just said, come on over, look at it, see if you don't like it. It's got more square foot and everything for the same price. And I'm going to take yours. And, uh, you know, and they did it, you know, and you're just going that, you know, that's human intervention to make sure it's a, 
you know, more integrated place, but it's just human. You know, the guy was just said, well, this isn't good. I don't want to have a black section of Columbia and a white. And the only way of preventing it is to doing something like this. So it, it, it you know, it's just all it's all, that's that's the actual definition of the word awesome right yeah I mean, it is that's so, awesome. i mean and he'd do that over and over again and to him every detail mattered and then also he he'd be the worst example for harvard business school which i went to is because i'd watch him and you'd have sort of the, the kings of commerce coming in to see him and then the next the next hour was a kid from Columbia trying to figure out what to do with his life. And I was going, Jim, you can't, <laughs> you, you, you know, you're not, you're, you're not doing good time management. And he said, well, guess what, Bart, life isn't good time management. <laughs> it's about I think people that and things. <laughs> <laughs> I think that last three minutes you gave, you know, should sustain us all for, for good deeds and, and works uh, to inspire us moving yeah. forward. Bart, thank you. I can't thank you enough for thank doing you. this, man. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Damien. You, you carry on. Uh, you need, we, we need you out there and giving people thoughts, ideas, hope, and optimism, um, and, and to know that they can do things that will matter. Um, and um, and uh, bless you, and good luck. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, we're so grateful to have you. And uh, one question I like to get a little intel out of you, uh, being in Baltimore, have you been to Allura yet on uh, Charles Street at Charles and Eager? No, I haven't. It's a phenomenal place. You can stop by for um, coffee. You can get the most incredible pasta outside of Little Italy in Baltimore. Really? It's yeah, and it's great lunch spot. You know, right. so it's it's right at uh, Charles and Eager. Great. Check it out. Yeah, it comes exactly. highly recommended by the Gold Sucker Foundation CEO Matt Gallagher. Oh, I know Matt twice well. a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. He's there about twice a day. All right. Well, thank right. you for doing this, my man. I appreciate thank it, you. and I love to uh, connect with you when we get back to Baltimore. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. You're the man. Thank you, brother.